Uh, we asked uh, Bob to come a couple of years ago, Jim Montgomery. By the way, Jim and Sharon are here this morning visiting with us. Good to see them back. But uh, Jim Montgomery and Ed Rayberg and a number of us got together and and uh, decided to ask Bob Vernon to come and, and speak to the law enforcement agencies here in the Valley and also to speak to our men. And yesterday we had about 200 or so men that uh, gathered here in the fireside room, room to hear Bob Vernon speak. It was a tremendous time, time of real challenge and encouragement for all of us. So, Bob, will you come up and, and teach us, please? This is Bob Vernon. Good morning. I bring you greetings from Los Angeles, where the birds wake you up coughing. <laughs> Bev Rayberg last night said, that, you know, I went out and I, I ran about four miles last night just to kind of get invigorated. And and uh, when I came back, I something was bothering my allergies, and I was commenting about that. And she said, the air's too clean for you. What you need to do is go out there in the garage and lay down behind one of the cars, and we'll turn it on for you. And, Get a smog fix, you know. Well, I, I'm here to, uh, to speak to you from God's Word, but I, I believe I need to give you somewhat of a report to kind of lead into that on what is occurring in Los Angeles. You probably read about our gang warfare that's going on there. And uh, unfortunately for you, uh, what happens in Los Angeles usually occurs other places in the nation a few years later. Now, that doesn't mean we're ahead of you. We're below you on the way down. And uh, we're not proud of that, but unfortunately it is kind of a predictor to look at what's happening in Los Angeles. I'll never forget going back to Chicago for a year to study at Northwestern back in the late 60s. And uh, as I was living there on the, uh, the north shore of Chicago, right there by the university, uh, Northwestern University, uh, I, I warned the people about what was happening with drugs. And I said, you know, drugs are really... Uh, coming into the mainstream. It's not just in the, the ghetto. It's not just in the barrios. It's not just in the central cities. It's coming to suburbia. And in fact, I, I've seen it here, I've told them. You know, I see some of your kids uh, hanging around the laundromat uh, blowing marijuana. And they, no, no, we'd never do it up here on the North Shore. You know, this is the upper crust. That This will never happen here. And five years later, they asked me to come back and, and speak at their high schools because they said, it's out of control. we got a problem. So usually what begins in Los Angeles does spread. And I think this, this gang warfare is, is something that is already beginning to spread. I was talking with, uh, uh, I guess it's now Sheriff Montgomery. He used to be chief, but now he's, uh, he's kind of a, they, they call him up there a play sheriff because he's not elected, he's appointed. But, but he's a sheriff anyhow, you know. He's, he has this uh, big department. Uh, of this metropolitan area around Seattle, and he said, yes, the gang members have already exported their crack cocaine and, and the way of uh, selling it into that area, so it's, it's spreading around. Uh, what has occurred with, with uh, cocaine is kind of an interesting phenomenon. You know, cocaine used to be uh, peddled as a, as a crystalline powder, and it would be put in what they call lines on a, on a piece of glass or whatever, and then they take a straw and sniff it up their nose, and that's the way it would be uh, ingested into the body. It would get in the nasal membranes and be transferred into your blood system uh, that way. Well, they, they found that if they take that cocaine and process it in such a way that uh, they cook it up into a crystal form, uh, a crystalline form, it's, it's better for two reasons. Number one, when you buy it, you know you're getting pure cocaine. When you buy the powder, it could be cut with other kinds of powders. But when you buy a crystal of cocaine, I mean, that's what it is. It's cocaine. Uh, so you know you're getting uh, the pure stuff. Uh, secondly, you can put that crystal in a, a bong, they call it, or a pipe, 
and smoke it. And the vapors you inhale, it goes into your lungs, and it is assimilated much better and much quicker into your body. They prefer that. It gives you a quicker, a better high. And, of course, uh, along with that, it's very much more addictive. And so uh, crack cocaine, or rock cocaine, as we call it in Los Angeles, has become extremely popular. And they, they sell it in $25 rocks or $50 rocks, depending on the size of them. And uh, the price is coming down. In some places, you can buy the rocks now for $10. They're kind of undercutting one another. And uh, it, it's, it's just a raging uh, uh, scourge that's uh, literally sweeping Southern California. It's uh, cutting across all racial, ethnic barriers and socioeconomic barriers. And so it's, it's pervasive. And, uh, in fact, some of our biggest users are... Uh, out on the, the west side in the entertainment industry, the Hollywood set, and uh, uh, in the northern part of Los Angeles, northeast Los Angeles, in our valley, a lot of cocaine abuse in, in the valley. Uh, we put undercover police officers who look real young on our high school campuses. They actually go there as students. They have to turn in the homework and everything, you know. Nobody knows that that they're police officers, not even the, the staff at the, at the high school. The only people that know about it are some of the people downtown from the Board of Education. And uh, these officers are placed in every school. Uh, eventually, we place them in a series of schools here this semester, and then we move them over here for the, for the following semester. And uh, they make as many purchases as they can during uh, the few weeks that they're in school. And then we round up the sellers. And uh, once again, we, we find that it's being sold in virtually every high school in Los Angeles. It's not just certain high schools. And so it's becoming very pervasive, and I think you should be aware of that. Uh, one of the things that is occurring because of that is uh, what happened during the 20s with illegal alcohol. You know, there were a lot of gang problems during the 20s with the Capone gang and the, the Purple gang and a whole bunch of other gangs that you've no doubt... Uh, read about or watched when you watched that old series, The Untouchables, on TV, you know. Well, a similar phenomena is occurring, and the only difference is what they're selling. Now they're selling cocaine instead of alcohol, but now they're warring over district. Uh, they're drive-by shootings. Uh, this last Good Friday, we had uh, what is now referred to as a Good Friday shooting, where some guy uh, pulled up, and, and there were about 10 or 15 uh, opposing gang members that were selling cocaine. Now in this guy's district, he didn't like that, so he came out with an AK-47 and he mowed them all down. One of the young people he mowed down was a little four-year-old boy who will never be the same. He, he's, he's alive today, but he's, he's crippled for the rest of his life. Uh, just last week, on the weekend, I rolled on a, on a case that they called me about at home. They said, this is a nasty one, Chief. You probably should get down here. The press is, is abounding and they need someone to talk to. So I I jumped in my car and went down to the location, and, and there was a 17-month-old baby that had been shot uh, through the head during one of these hits. It just so happened his mother, who was holding him, was uh, next to a, a young man who was uh, a competitor selling the dope, and so they just mowed everybody down. And this uh, young, little 17-year-old, 17-month-old baby was killed in that uh, gang warfare. So uh, we're seeing uh, increased shootings. We've had over 200 gang killings this year because of this narcotic uh, competition. And uh, it's something that uh, we all need to be concerned about. I, I really think that if we don't get a handle on what's happening as far as drug abuse in our nation, it's going to be the end of us, literally. I think it's now our, our nation's number one domestic problem. Now, that, that sounds like an overstatement, but I don't believe it is. I think it's our number one domestic problem. Uh, 
We're doing a lot of things to combat it, all the way from the hammer task force you probably heard about and the, our tank that we're using to knock down the rock houses, literally a tank. And uh, many people are saying, why in the world do you do that? Why are you using a tank? And my answer is because we can't call in airstrikes. <laughs> no, not really, but uh, we do have to use this tank. And, and uh, for people that don't understand why we have to do that, uh, we used to be able to go up and, and knock down a door with a battering ram uh, and, and get in. But now what occurs is they begin to, to build steel cages behind the doors. So when you knock open the door, you just find yourself in a steel cage, sealing the floor. And you're at their mercy as far as them shooting you. We lost two officers that way, and we decided we're not going to do that anymore. We began pulling off the bars from the windows with a 4x4 four four with a cable on it. And then they got onto that, and they started putting uh, steel plates on the inside of the lag bolts across at least two or three of the studs in the wall. And the first time we tried that, we dropped the whole rear end of the truck out in the middle of the street, and so we decided we won't do that anymore. And uh, the way we're doing it now is we're doing it two ways. We're doing it with a tank and with explosives. Uh, the tank, we, we literally go at a side of the house where there's no door and just make our own door. And uh, uh, you say, why don't you do that all the time? Why do you use explosives? Because now they've gone onto that and they've begun uh, putting cars on the lawns in front of the houses that are selling the dope. And, and so uh, now we can't use the tank. And so we run up with a shape charge and put it on the side of the wall and literally blow a hole in the side of the house to go in. You say, boy, that sounds like warfare. It really is. It really is. It's amazing what's occurring. Well, uh, enough of that report. I, I hope to kind of uh, hopefully awaken you to be concerned and uh, become involved in not only uh, this, uh, the supporting of the tough law enforcement, but we have a whole spectrum of the way that we're handling this. And on the other end of the spectrum is our DARE program. Uh, DARE stands for Drug Abuse Resistance Education. We now have uniformed police officers in every grammar school in Los Angeles. We cover half of them one semester and the other half the other semester. Each officer can handle five schools. They go to school A on Monday, school B on Tuesday, and they start all over again the following Monday. And they present a whole semester course uh, that really doesn't have an awful lot to do with drugs, believe it or not. They talk about things like long-term goal orientation, like uh, concepts of right and wrong. You know, that's, that's kind of a new thing to kids today, believe it or not. And they, they like to hear it. I'm really amazed and encouraged by the fact that they're responding so positively to someone who says, you know what, this is wrong. It's always wrong. It's never going to be right, you know. And, and they kind of respond kind of like in a refreshed attitude like, gee, someone's willing to tell us that something's wrong. Apparently not too many people are, are doing that. Uh, we talk about self-esteem and how to build it. We talk about a whole concept of consequences, that for every decision you make, there are negative and positive consequences. And when we finally get around to the issue of drugs, it's really, it's really uh, heartening, really, to, to see the kids help the officer put up the consequences. The officer doesn't just spit them out. He says, okay, now, uh, as far as smoking marijuana, let's put up the positive side of smoking marijuana. What will it do for it? little kid raises his hand. Well, it kind of makes you feel good. It makes you feel good. Um, it makes you... So you can talk to the girls a little better, talk to the girls a little better, you know. And they put up a few good things, not too many really, on the good side. Then they say, now are there any negative consequences? Well, yeah. Uh, kids start raising their hands. Uh, the good feeling goes away after about 45 minutes, temporary. Okay. What else? Well, uh, it, it kind of gives you more problems because now you have to depend on dependence, and, you know, and they begin to list all of the negative things. And all of a sudden, the kids, you see lights going on, and they're looking up there, and the list that they have made themselves on the negative side is much longer and much more serious than the, than the list of good things. And you see little kids 
sixth and you know, fifth and sixth graders saying, you know what, I'm not going to do that. That has more bad consequences. I, I'm going to choose not to do that. It's really encouraging. So uh, there are some good sides to what we see occurring in Los Angeles. And the D.A.R.E. program is spreading all over the United States. I have a D.A.R.E. pin right here to kind of advertise that. Uh, it, if you would, would you please open your Bibles to Matthew, the 10th chapter. We'll get into the Word of God and, and see what the Word of God has to say about uh, how we are to behave and what our role is in this very challenging time that we live in. As you're doing that, I, I'm just going to pray for a minute here. Father, we ask that you would be with us as we open your word. You're the author, and so we need your guidance. Uh, teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there's much misunderstanding about what a police officer does. If I would ask uh, you, for instance, right now, what, what do you think the job of a police officer is? Many of you would say, wrecking cars, you know, because you've watched TV and you've seen them bump into one another. And someone else would say, shooting people. And, and other people would say, chasing guys down dark alleys. And, and of course, we do all three of those, unfortunately. But uh, you know what? The, the largest block of time consumed by police officers is preparing reports. Have you ever seen that in a movie? Well, that's not fun to watch someone sitting down preparing a report. But believe it or not, that's, that's the largest chunk of time in a police officer's life. Every car chase he gets involved in, he has to document. <laughs> Every shooting he gets involved in, he has to sit down and explain and have the, all of the arrest reports and the crime reports prepared for the court prosecution. So uh, you don't realize that, but uh, if you're thinking about being a police officer, some of you young folks... Uh, be sure you pay a lot of attention to your English and your spelling and your and your literature type of uh, uh, courses and and prepare yourself for that kind of a job because that's exactly what it is much of the time. Well, you know there are a lot of misunderstandings also about the Christian life. Uh, if you would ask uh, someone, "What do you think being a Christian is?" you might get a lot of different kind of answers. I think the best thing for us to do is is look in the Word of God and find out what God says about what is it to be a Christian. The first uh, series of verses I'd like to look at is in Matthew 10. And uh, here we, we read about the concept of us, us followers of Christ, being called by Jesus, not Christians, but disciples. Let's pick up the reading in verse 24. He's talking to his followers, and he calls them disciples. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become as his teacher. Stop right there for a moment. Now, that word disciple is an interesting word. It comes from a Greek word, methano, from which we get words like math, mathematics, logic. It's um, it, it really literally means learner. That's probably the best direct translation. And so, uh, you know, we really should consider ourselves, as Christians, learners. That's what Jesus said we were. In fact, uh, we weren't called Christians until after Jesus was crucified. And, and later on in Acts 11.26, it tells us that the disciples, the learners, were first called Christians in Antioch. And this is quite a long time after Jesus left the scene. Jesus never referred to us as Christians. That later, that phrase was later coined. In fact, uh, even during that first century when the disciples went out and spread the gospel, in Acts 14.21, it says, And they went out and made many disciples. It doesn't say they went out and converted many people to be Christians. It said they made many disciples. And so I think it's important for us to understand this concept of, of being a learner. And he says right in those verses we read, 
what the overall long-term goal is of a disciple, and that is, at the first part of verse 25, that he become as his teacher. And so the reason we're gathered here this morning, one of the prime reasons, is to learn how to be like Jesus. But I want to cover something that maybe you haven't thought of before. In the following verses, verses 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, there's an interesting uh, thought process that begins to develop. Jesus uses a phrase several times. You'll see it cropping up first in verse 26. Notice, therefore, do not fear. See that phrase, do not fear. I want you to look down in verse 28. And do not fear. And look in verse 31. And do not fear. Three times he calls our attention to the fact that he doesn't want us to have fear overcome uh, our, our behavior. And uh, he gets very specific. I'm not going to take the time to go in this, but he says, don't fear those that, that intimidate you in verse 26, really is what he's talking about. And in verse 28, he's talking about not fearing those who would physically assault you or even kill your body. And in verse 31, he talks about not fearing uh, the basic necessities of life. And he talks about even the birds are provided the necessities of life by God. And don't don't get so hung up on these fears that that you can't be a disciple. And I think that's an interesting concept that he ties in overcoming fear with being a disciple. And right after he says that phrase for the last time in verse 31, he tells us why he wants to overcome our fear. Look at verse 32. Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, you know what I believe? I believe that the first step in learning how to be like Jesus is to overcome our fear to identify with Him. You know, if if you have a fear of identifying yourself as a follower of Christ, you're never going to learn to be like Him. I think that's what he's saying. He's saying the first step in this learning process is to overcome your fear. On a Wednesday night when people say, well, why do you want to get up work on time? Instead of saying, well, i got to i got this social event that I have to go to. Why don't you just tell them the truth? I'm going to a Bible study. You're going to a Bible study? Yeah. I'm a follower of Christ. Just come out and tell them. You know, uh, uh, three years ago, I attended a football game in the Coliseum. We used to have the Rams there, you know, and they, they kind of left us in the lurch. You know, I, I still haven't forgiven them for that because... <laughs> I like the Rams. I, I used to do a, a couple of their chapels every season, and I still do one every season. And, and I got to know several of the guys. You know, Jackie Slater, that offensive tackle, uh, 275 pounds, and he's not fat. I mean, you know, these guys are big men. And uh, they used to always invite me to, uh, to have breakfast with them after the, after the chapel. So I, I got to know them and like them. And, and then the Raiders came. And, you know, they're a different group. And the fans are very much different. We were at this game. I was with my son, and they were playing the Seattle Seahawks for the for the, the championship of that conference that year, three years ago. And of course, the Seahawks are a little closer to you, so you're probably champ, uh, you know you're probably f- uh, fans of the Seahawks. But anyhow, uh, they were playing the Seahawks. And as we came into the stadium, I was standing outside one of the tunnels with my son. And we were both in plain clothes, and and uh, one of the young police officers working the game recognized me, and he came over and he said, "Hello, Chief. You going to watch the game?" And I said, "Yep." He said, Chief, this Raider group, this is a different group. And I said, yeah, it really is. He said, and I thought he captured the essence of the Raider fans. 
He said, I think I know how to make myself a whole bunch of money. I said, how's that? He said, just get a permit to set up a tattoo booth here. <laughs> he said, I'll make a lot of money. And you know, he kind of captured the essence of the Raiders fans. Well, uh, after the game, the Raiders won that day. And Bob and I, we saw they were going to win very handily. And so we, we left about three minutes early. And we were getting out to the car to, to beat the traffic, you know. Not very good fans to leave early. And uh, suddenly, a, a group of police officers went running by us, and the radios on their belts were, were blaring, Officer needs help, floor of the Coliseum, Officer needs help. And Bob said, Dad, that's, that's, that's the bad one, right? You know, he remembered that he's not a police officer, but uh, first, if you need one or two cars, you ask for backup. If you need about uh, five or six units, you ask for assistance. If you want the whole world, you ask for help. You know, I mean, that's, that's the terminology of the LAPD. And so he said, that must be pretty bad. And I said, you're right. He said, let's go take a look. And so we started toward the, the end of the Coliseum where, where they had, if you watch the opening ceremonies of the, of the Olympics, where they had all the pianos, you know. And we were going through the, those, those pillars right there. And just as we entered there, just inside the, uh, the, the uh, chain link fence, there were two Los Angeles uniformed police officers up against the fence. They had somebody they had taken into custody. They had him in handcuffs. And they had a crowd of about 100 people surrounding them. This guy apparently down on the floor of the Coliseum had, had hit a police officer over the head with a wine bottle or something and had knocked him unconscious. And these officers had chased him up there and arrested him. But the crowd was not going to let those officers take him. And they were beginning to close in. And I, I looked at my son and, and I looked at the situation, a hundred against two. And you know what? I, uh, I have to admit this to you. I'm ashamed to admit this, but a cowardly thought went in my mind. You know, you're in plain clothes. No one knows you're a cop. Uh, the odds of four to 100 aren't going to be too much better than two against 100. Why don't you just walk on by? I mean, I really thought that. And fortunately, it only lingered for a moment, and, and, I, and I suppressed that, that fear. And I, and I looked to Bob, and I said, Bob, we're going to have to go in and help him. And he looked rather soberly at me, and he said, I know. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> Now, Bob's a big guy and all that, but, you know, those aren't good odds. And so we start, I said, you stick right by me. We got to kind of back one another. He said, you got it. So we started through the crowd. And as I got up to the front of the crowd, they had already jumped in on the officers. And, and one of the officers had been knocked down. And they had the nightstick they had taken away from one of the other officers. And uh, the guy that was seemingly in charge had the nightstick. And, and as they were kicking the officers and, and pouring beer on them and various other things, I got a hold of the, the shoulder of the guy that had the nightstick, and he was just getting ready to take a whack. And I, and I spun him around, and I, and I looked him eye to eye. I got eye contact, and I said, Sir, I can tell by the way you're dressed. You have a responsible job. You don't need a police record. Now get hold of yourself. You know, it was amazing. It, it kind of broke the spell there for a minute. It's funny what happens when people are in a mob. You know, they do things normally they wouldn't do. And this guy wasn't a criminal. He looked like just regular Joe. You know, he was dressed rather nicely and all that. And just for that instant, I broke the spell. And he kind of looked and his eyes were almost saying, yeah, you're right. You know, he didn't say anything, but he's kind of realized what he was doing. And then I heard this voice behind me say, come on, you guys want to fight? Let's go. It was my son. He was choosing off the whole crowd. You know, <laughs> just as I'm getting control of the crowd. And I said, I said, no, 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 don't listen to him. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, and I'm... I'm talking to, to the, the leadership of the crowd. You know, we're trained to do that. Go after the, the leader. And I'm, again, talking to this man. Now, wait a minute. Now, get hold of yourself now. Don't listen to him. Uh, let's let's uh, think clearly here, you know. And the second time, Bob said, come on, let's go. You know, he, he was, his fists were clenched and he was ready to go. And this happened twice. I, I thought it happened three times, but he told me, no, I only did that twice. He was kind of embarrassed after. 
And later on, I said, Bob, why did you do that? I said, I'm just getting them calmed down. He said, Dad, he said, it's funny. He said, uh, knocking the officers down, even kicking them didn't bother me that much. But that one guy that was pouring beer on him, he said, that is insult. He said, I just couldn't believe it. At any rate, uh, I finally got control of my son, too. And, you know, amazing thing happened. Uh, God answered a prayer. It was a short one. <laughs> As I was going through the crowd, I just kind of said, help. <laughs> you know, uh, I think God understands those kinds of prayers. And, you know, an amazing thing happened. We took control of that situation. They even allow us to take the prisoner with us. And we got even the radio that someone had taken out of the officer's belt back, worth several hundred dollars, and, and we got out of there and took control of the situation, including what was happening on the on the playing field. Uh, but that, that really brought home to me a principle that I think we're seeing right here. You know, in the Christian life, often we are tempted not to identify ourselves as followers of Christ. You're at work, you walk by a lunchroom, there's a, a fellow worker sitting in there. Maybe she's uh, got a Bible on the, on the table next to her. And she's eating her lunch and reading the Bible. And somebody begins to make fun of her. Hey, what are you reading? Is that a Bible? Oh, Miss Goody Two-Shoes here, you know. And we just walk on by. You know what we really should do? We should step into that lunchroom and say, Hey, you giving her gas for reading the Bible? You're going to have to take me on too because I'm a Christian. What's it to you? No, don't say it quite like that. But, you know... <laughs> What I'm saying is, we need to be overt about our relationship with Christ. We need to overcome that fear, just like Jesus said, to walk on by. I almost walked on by some fellow officers. That would have been a terrible thing to do. I would have been so ashamed. I'm ashamed to even tell you I thought about it. And you know what? We need to be ashamed when we don't stand and call out the fact that, yes, I'm one of those two. I follow Christ. God help me. I think that's the first priority of becoming a learner to be like Jesus. Now keep that in mind and turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. Because not only are we told to be disciples, and the first step of being a disciple is to overcome our fear and publicly identify with Him, but we're also told that we're stewards. Stewards, let's look at verse 10 of 1 Peter 4. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards, there's that word, of the manifold grace of God. Now, this isn't the only place this word appears. Jesus called us stewards too. The Apostle Paul in a couple other of his books in Corinthians refers to us as stewards. And he talks about it being important as stewards to be faithful. Now, first of all, I think we need to define what a steward was at the time the Bible was written. The steward was known as a manager of something that did not belong to him. Now, in the case of uh, the agrarian society that they had, a steward might be the manager of a vineyard that someone else owned. But he pruned the vineyard, he fertilized it, he watered it. He was the steward, he took care of it. And as a result, he got some of the proceeds from that stewardship. He got a certain percentage of the crop that he could use himself or sell. Once again, remember that the steward took care of something that did not belong to him. That's a very important concept. We have a stewardship as police officers. Uh, I have uh, 
a, a big stewardship. And, and part of the stewardship I have is, is what we call our air support division. In addition to the 18 divisions that report to me, we have an air support division. We have uh, 16 Jet Ranger helicopters and uh, over 100 pilots and observers to, to keep those in the air at all the times. And uh, uh, one time, one of those helicopters took off. It wasn't in the air more than uh, five minutes, and something happened with the engine. The engine stopped, and you'd think if a helicopter's engine stopped, it's all over. But somehow they can put that rotor blade into what they call auto-rotation, so you kind of glide down. It, it doesn't glide down as slow as you'd like it, but it does glide down. And, and when it hits, uh, it, it just so happened they had a schoolyard to set it down in, and it was not during school hours. It was in the evening time. And they sat down in that schoolyard, and they hit pretty hard. It damaged the helicopter. It caused several thousand dollars worth of damage, but both officers walked away from that. And you know the old saying that pilots have, any landing you walk away from is a good landing. <laughs> but, you know, this was not a good landing as far as we were concerned because, you know, that helicopter did not belong to those two officers. They were stewards of that helicopter. That helicopter, with all of its electronic equipment in it, its infrared, what they call FLIR device, where we can see what's happening at night, in addition to the, the very expensive uh, spotlight that we have, uh, all of the radio equipment that's inside, the radar, whatever, that thing is over a million dollars. It's worth over a million dollars, one helicopter. Well, that helicopter did not belong to them. And you know what we found was the cause of the engine failure? They had run out of fuel. And you know, that's on the, the, the checklist of every uh, helicopter. It's right there on the, I, I've seen it. It's the, they have a checklist right on their instrumentation board. And one of the things they're supposed to check before they leave is their fuel. Obviously, these officers did not go through their checklist. They were bad stewards. They were immediately removed from the air support division, suspended without pay for several days, and in humiliation are assigned to another task. You see, because they were not good stewards of something that didn't belong to them, that helicopter belonged to the citizens of the city of L.A. It wasn't theirs. They were charged merely with taking care of it. I want you to notice what this verse says. As each one... Stop right there for a moment. That means that if you're a Christian, each one, that includes everybody in this room, each one is included in what is going to follow in this verse. So now this verse is talking to you if you're a Christian. As each one has received a special gift, employ it, how? In serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You know, there are gifts that are given to us, and I'm sure your pastor has talked about gifts. Gifts that he gives us as far as teaching, administration, the gift of helps or support, the gift of giving, which implies that God's given you the ability to make the money to give. And some of you have that. I have some friends. I, I shared about one friend yesterday with a man. I have a, a guy that everything he touches turns to gold. I mean, he's just one of those Midas-type guys. He, he knows how to invest. God's given him an incredible gift. I don't have that gift. If you want to invest in the stock market, you ask me when I sell, and at that moment, buy. <laughs> you know? I mean, I'm seem, seemingly backwards, you know, I just can't do it. But, but this friend of mine, he has this gift, and he is a good steward. He gives it back to the Lord. He recognizes it isn't his. He acts like he's a conduit. Thank you, Lord. Oh, it just kind of, oh man, you're giving me too much. Oh, he has to give faster and faster because the Lord seems to kind of not allow him to give away as much as, as, as he's given him. It's, a, it's amazing. Guy has a problem. You say, give me that problem. <laughs> well, you know, that's a gift that is not his, but he's a steward. What we're told to do is identify our gift 
And in the Word of God, there are several of the basic gifts. In fact, if you don't exercise your gift in this body of believers right here, this body of believers is going to go hurting. Because you have a unique gift. There's no duplicate of you. You're unique. You need to recognize that the gift that God has given you needs to be exercised in this church. You need to get involved. You need to find out what your gift is. You say, how do I do that? Well, there's a couple basic ways. These, I'm not a theologian, but I'll tell you a couple practical ways I've used. Number one, what I like to do. God has given me some likes and dislikes, some abilities and disabilities. And secondly, it's what people that know me well confirm with me and say, yeah, you do that good, Bob. Keep doing that. Let's go on to the last point this morning. Not only are we learners, disciples, and stewards, but turn over in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. We just have a few minutes to go now, so we'll have to hurry along. Here he says to us, we'll pick up the reading in verse 17, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, or a true Christian, he is a new creature. Creature, The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these are come from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us, listen to this now, the ministry of reconciliation. You know what reconciliation is all about. Reconciliation is bringing people together. And our ministry is bringing people together with God. Namely, verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us this word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. That's the third point I want to make this morning. We're not only disciples or learners. We're not only stewards to find out what our gift is and minister it in this body. But thirdly, we're to view ourselves as ambassadors. What is an ambassador? I looked it up in Webster's Dictionary. A minister of the highest rank employed by one prince or state at the court of another to transact state affairs or business. Sounds kind of important, doesn't it? Realize the importance when you begin to realize what court you're representing as an ambassador. We literally are charged with representing the court of heaven here on earth. That's awesome. God wants us to represent his government, if you want to put it that way. His court here on earth. You know, and we never know when we're heavily into that role. Uh, early in my career, I learned a principle. God sent me to the LAPD not to be a preacher, but to be a police officer. I don't preach on duty. I'm off duty right now. I'm not getting paid by the city of LA to be up here. You know that. When I'm on duty, I work hard at being a cop. I think that the biblical principle in Colossians that whatever you do, do your work heartily as unto God, is a, an admonition to whatever you're called to do, whether it's to be a police officer like myself or a dentist or a lawyer or, or whatever. You just be the best at what God has called you to be. And then you're available. As a sergeant, I was riding to and from work with a young man by the name of Pierre Berlot. I think you can probably tell by the name. He was a Frenchman. He came from Quebec and naturalized as an American citizen. He became a police officer at a very young age, in his early 20s. I was his sergeant. He lived just a couple turnoffs off the freeway by me, and so I'd pick him up. I was making a little more money as a sergeant, and we'd go in my car, and I'd take him into work. 
Uh, I would drop a little bait with Pierre when we were going to and from work. We weren't on duty now, and so I thought, this is okay. I can talk personally with him. And so I'd say things like, he would describe some problem he was confronting. I'd say, well, Pierre, you know, you'd really handle that problem a lot better if you had some help from God, like I do. And he'd kind of look at me kind of weird, and then he'd change the subject. Yeah, I think I'll go fishing this week. You know, I mean, he just let me know. I don't want to talk about that. And so I'd kind of back off. I didn't want to take advantage of him because I'm his sergeant, you know, even though we're off duty. So I'd just kind of back away. And I prayed, God, help Pierre to be interested. I'd like to share my faith with him. And this went on for several weeks. And pretty soon, I kind of gave up, to be honest with you. I thought, well, I guess it's not for Pierre, you know, and I shouldn't have, but I kind of gave up. And one, one morning, we're coming home. It was The sun was coming up. We'd worked all night, been in court the prior day. I hadn't had any sleep for two days. I was dead tired. And the sun's in my eyes, and I don't like that anyhow. And, and we're going out there, and the sun's in my eyes, and I'm tired. And, and guess what? Pierre says, Sarge, you know, you, you've, you've talked a few times. I've heard you talk about this relationship you have with God. Would you, would you explain that a little more? And, and I kind of, oh, my eyes went up in my head, and I kind of, God, please, not now. You know, <laughs> I'm tired, you know. And I, and I almost didn't carry on. But you know, Pierre wouldn't let me. I'd give him a little short answer. Well, it means you get saved. Uh, Sarge, what does that mean? You know? Well, you know, I, finally I just gave up and, and, and we pulled off the freeway and I pulled in front of his apartment and we sat in front of his apartment for over 45 minutes and I just presented the whole plan of salvation to him. How Jesus became, you know, God became man form of Jesus Christ and lived the perfect life and died on the cross of substitutionary death for us to, to give us the, the possibility of coming alive spiritually with his spirit in us, you know? I laid that all out to him. And uh, when I got through, he said, you know, I, I, I'm, going, I'm going in the apartment. I want to be by myself when I make that prayer. But would you pray for me here? I said, absolutely. And I prayed for him. And he said, see you later, Sarge. And he went in the apartment and I drove away. And it was the last time I ever saw Pierre below. I went back to work three days later, found out he'd been transferred to Newton Vice. About three weeks after that, he was involved in a raid on a bookie establishment, got hit over the head with a chair, started having excruciating headaches, went into the hospital, they did a CAT scan, they found an aneurysm in his brain, probably congenital, but it was aggravated by this blow. And the next morning, he died on the operating table at age 27. And I almost didn't share my faith with Pierre Berlot. Came that close. You never know when you're an ambassador. You never know when, as a Christian, you're representing the court of heaven to a dying man. He's sitting next to me. He's healthy, vigorous, 27, young. He had few days to live. You know, we don't know that. What an awesome responsibility we have to share our faith. God's calling you to be learners. And you won't have a problem with that in this church. This pastor teaches the word of God. God's calling you to be stewards, to find out what your gift is, and employ it for the good of this body of believers. And God's calling you and I to be ambassadors for the court of heaven and to share our faith. For those of you who aren't Christians, you say, what do you mean? Knowing Christ. You know, I'll just, in the last 30 seconds or so, basically what it, what it involves is confessing to God that you're a sinner. You know, the Bible says, 
If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I had to come to God. There was a point in my life, I'll never forget when it happened, when I had to say that to God. God, I admit to you, I'm not perfect. By your definition, I'm a sinner. I confess. You know, that was hard for me, to be honest with you. It was. And it might be hard for you. But the Bible says we must do that. Pierre Berlo did that. Secondly, we've got to turn from our way. I shared with the men yesterday that the Bible says in Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. We're going this way. And Jesus, when he was here, told his disciples over and over again, you need to repent. You know what that word means, repent? It means turn from your way to God's way. To have a desire to go his way. Now, you won't be able to go his way with your own strength. You can't get there on your own. Being a Christian doesn't mean you clean up your life. God will do that for you. Repenting means you're willing to turn and let God give you the strength to follow him. And most importantly, being a Christian means to receive Jesus as your personal Savior. The Bible says, as many as received him, speaking of Jesus, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. We have bulletproof vests that we supply our officers. They're amazing little devices that we wear. And yet, although every Los Angeles police officer has a bulletproof vest, every year we lose one or two officers due to gunshot wounds to the chest. You know why? Because they're not wearing their vest. Now, if I had one of those vests up here this morning, I could set it on that ch- uh, stairway right there, and I, I wouldn't do this, of course, but theoretically, I could fire my gun into that vest and then hold it up to you and say, see, it didn't go through. It stopped the bullet. And all of you at that moment would believe in that vest. But that belief would be very impersonal. It would not be a belief that involves commitment like receiving Christ does. In order to do that, you would have to come up and put on that vest and go out and face danger and depend on that vest to save you personally. You see, it's a personal thing. You put it on. It's not on the the stairs anymore. It's on you. And you know what I found in my life? Earlier in my life, it had been this way with me and God. I believed in him. I believed he was up there. I even believed that Jesus was his son who died on the cross. I believed all the right things. But there had to be a time in my life, and I finally came to that in my teens, when I said, I'm going to take Jesus and ask him to come into my life and make it personal, not impersonal over there on the stairs, not impersonal on the cross, but say, Lord, I not only believe in you, I'm taking my belief in you to the point of commitment. I want you to come in. I want to receive you, like it says in John 1.12. I want you to make me the man you want me to be. And at that moment, I received Jesus as my personal Savior. And I've never been the same. He's with me. Oh, I have problems. I face trials. You know, we're not called to a gospel of prosperity, a gospel of no problems. But the wonderful thing is, although we have the same problems as everybody else, and maybe a couple more even, we now have the king of the universe dwelling in us to get us through those problems and give us the strength to be the kind of people he wants us to be. Would you join me in prayer as we close this morning? Think of these words that we've talked about this morning. Disciple. Learner. Steward. Ambassador. I'm going to suggest that if God has spoken to you, in whatever way he's spoken to you, if he's spoken to you like he spoke to me many years ago to receive him personally, 
You might just go through those three steps of confessing to God you need Him, telling Him you're willing to turn from your way to repent, and to invite Him into your life. That may be your prayer. Or your prayer may be something like this. God, I'm a Christian. I've been sitting here, and you have spoken to me this morning, and I just want to let you know you have. And here's how you've spoken to me. And just kind of tell God. Put it in words. And ask Him to help you to be the man or woman He wants you to be. Father, you are hearing our prayers right now. And we thank you for that. And we ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.